This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to Around the Dial, your one-stop shop for sports talk's best moments every day. Here's your host, CBS Sports Radio's Damon Amendolara. Welcome inside Around the Dial, the best in your sports talk for Monday, July the 15th. I'm your host, D.A. On Friday night was perhaps the greatest sports moment of the 2019 year. That's in any sport because when else will we see this year? A team that honors a fallen player, a guy who just passed away, honoring him with his mother throwing out the first pitch, wearing his jersey number, remembering him the entire night, and then putting together their best historic performance of a number of years. The Angels combine on a no-hitter on the night that they honor Tyler Skaggs, who passed away a couple of weeks ago, found dead in his hotel room. This was their first home game since that. And you have that history that's performed. Absolutely stunning Higher forces at work. Here is Mully and Haw discussing it all on 670 The Score in Chicago. Emotionally, you people find that easy to invest in. Everyone can relate to grief and all the feelings and the mixed emotions that must have been going through the family of Tyler Skaggs that night as his mom threw out the uh, first pitch. Uh, Perfect strike. Pill. Perfect I mean, strike. Yeah. And then all the all the numerology associated with Crazy. this 71391. The Last time it happened, a combined no-hitter was on the day that Tyler Skaggs was born. Mike Trout hits a 454-foot home run for number 45, and he takes 28 seconds to, to trot around the bases on his home run trot, longer than he usually takes. These aren't, you know, you, you can call them coincidences, but they are too many. that It makes you, it, it can be spine-tingling and, and put goosebumps on your arms if you think about this long enough and talk about it long enough so I don't know I think that's a very difficult question to answer but they're very different stories and so memorable yeah I think probably the one the Angels one is a little bit more remarkable we use unbelievable all the time in sports that was unbelievable that no hitter and then every time you turned around over the the following twenty four hours was another numerical oddity. Like, yeah. wait, what? And David just went through a bunch of them. Another one. Uh, they scored seven. The Angels. They scored seven runs in the first thirteen in the game. Skag's birthday is seven thirteen. I mean, it's just you go you go again and again and again. I I have to go with this the no hitter that the Angels threw the combined no hitter from a pure sporting and athletic standpoint it, it was the tennis match but from an emotional story from a storybook thing from just all the crazy coincidences and, and everything lining up though it was definitely the angels no hitter i mean even even a, a dark-hearted soul such as myself got a little tingly 
watching the final outs of that game and, and yeah, his, his mom throwing out the first pitch and, and all of that involved. I mean, none of these Hollywood hacks could write anything <laughs> at, at, as good as that right there. You know, sometimes the best stuff is, is real life. So I think it, I'm going to go with the Angels thing as well. Uh, even though Wimbledon was great and, and legendary, you, you, like I said, you can't even make this kind of stuff up. I mean, when you combine all of the things that went into that night and then you see the Angels pitch a combined no-hitter that is so rare in and of itself, and the fact that the team's name is the Angels and there's all these numbers swirling around that are complete oddities, it was just an extraordinary night, an extraordinary performance, and to just see sports be able to do that and the Angels rise to the occasion like that, you just have to feel like, man, there are higher forces at work. Wow. In the NBA, things are finally quieting down after the craziest offseason, perhaps, in league history. And we're just still a couple of days removed from Russell Westbrook becoming a member of the Houston Rockets. And so because the NBA has had such crazy player movement, because you can never count on an NBA roster remaining consistent year to year, no matter how good you are, did NBA fandom change over the last decade or so in the middle of all of this crazy player movement? Here's the guys at 97.3 The Fan in Pittsburgh on The Fan Morning Show. It's easier to hold on to your provincial loyalty than in the NBA, for example. The NBA is very unique here as well because we don't have a team. But it's easier to hold on to that provincial loyalty in those regional sports as opposed to like the NBA. The only time you ever watch it is a national broadcast. The NFL, every broadcast is national or right. just about, you know. And so you it's much easier for a fan to develop a, a following around a specific player, a specific athlete, a specific star because they don't have to worry about if they're going to get to watch them or not because they're on TV three well, times Well, should a week. fantasy football have done that? And towns not like Pittsburgh. Like will right. there be people who live in uh, Topeka, Kansas is always an example right. or you know Omaha, Frisco, Texas. Peoria. Yeah, Peoria. <laughs> well, people say, I'm an A.B. fan. I used to have a Steeler jersey. Now I'm going and getting an A.B. Oakland jersey, and that's my guy. I like, think you might see that to some extent. Well, don't they have, like, those keeper leagues, right, where you, right. Once you get a guy, you hang on to him, so you don't care what team he's on as long as he catches a lot of passes for you? Well, but but I think regardless of whether it, that's the case or not, you, you may just have, again, if you don't have a local loyalty to a certain team, you're much more apt to latch on to a Did, specific star. Was LeBron the first guy that started this in sports? Did he really start the whole, uh, I'm going to be a basketball vagabond, I'm going to get my my squad, I'm going to take my squad and kind of travel city to city, and the jersey really doesn't matter. Like, it, it's just the jersey we happen to have on that I think year. he's the highest profile example. Yes. When they had the decision. Right. You know? and like, I, <laughs> be, be, because, I, like, I remember, for we example. We laughed, but we all watched it. I, for example, when I was a kid in the early to mid-80s, okay, and the Steelers were terrible for a few years, right? Mark Malone was their quarterback. Mm -hmm. But I'd go into the Sears wish book to get the Hutch uniform that I wanted for Christmas every year. There was no Steelers. There was no Mark Malone. There was no Walter Abercrombie Hutch uniform. I had to pick Joe Montana. And that was an example of, I'm going to latch onto a specific star. And people were Joe Montana fans, even if they were fans of a different team. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And when he went from San Francisco to Kansas City, people, oh, it's Joe Montana, that's well, my maybe guy. maybe the idea is born out of, too, and the okayness with it, if you will, is the AAU, cultivation of AAU. Like, in the summer now, 
when you're a kid, mm-hmm. you don't play with the kids in your neighborhood no. anymore. No. You find the best kids around and you get on a team with them. And, then and if that's not good teams. enough, yes, yeah. then you might switch teams. And I think that there's not the provincialism that you feel like is what the default is anymore. Well, they, like you don't play. Like I remember well, in like sixth and seventh grade playing basketball, summer basketball. Like we took our guys and went and played like over in Ambridge and a bunch mm-hmm. of different places. Now it was a fifth, team identity. It was our it was our yes. team that was going to be our school team. Uh huh. And you played together. Now no way. You find if you're no. a real good dude, you play with the other best dudes. Guy could be from the other side of town. He could be from Ohio. Whatever. Because whether they're consciously aware of it or not, when you talk about preteens, teenagers now, especially ones that are into sports, they don't even have to be into sports. They're much more aware of individual branding. And they don't think of it as such. They don't think of it as, what's my individual brand? But they think of themselves as an individual in those regards, rather than, okay, well, we're the we're the North Baldwin team and we're going to go over to South Whitehall and play those guys today. Yeah, the identity now isn't necessarily in team. The identity is is in individual. Mm-hmm. And in, it, sports is crazy, man. It really is. I love it. But it is it is crazy. I It is such a – it's a mercenary. It's as mercenary as of an endeavor as it's ever been. Yes. And it's. I don't see it ever going back. Like, you're now applauded in big time. If you're a team player of any sort, if you're like because I'm, it's a throwback, we, right? Right. We look at it like it's it's some sort of unusual uh, anomaly. Like, oh my god, look at him! He's a real team player. Yeah, he's not. He's gonna not even take a pay cut. He's gonna make the same money and just right. stay there. Think of the uniqueness of Sidney Crosby taking whatever he ta- that eight point seven Don't million leave Gino per year. Out. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, be, no. so, be because and we look at it and go, oh, that's that's quite a concept. It is one of the reasons, perhaps the greatest reason, that the NBA is a soaring stock right now. And that's because in today's climate, for a league outside of the NFL, any sport, not football, to survive and thrive, you've got to sell the individual players, not the teams, and not necessarily the games. It's got to be stuff around the games and personalities and charisma and marketability matters. That's how you get noticed. That's how you bring fans into the equation. And I think in the NBA, because fans are LeBron fans or Anthony Davis fans or Kawhi Leonard fans or James Harden fans or Russell Westbrook fans or Kevin Durant fans or Steph Curry fans or Kyrie Irving fans, because they are fans of those players – Where that player plays is where that fandom can go. And it doesn't have to be that I don't like that guy anymore because he's not on my team. I'll follow him to his new team. And you kind of have to play that way if you're a fan because there is such crazy turnover in the NBA, but also because all of these guys have become super influential just on their own. So when that is your dynamic and that is the backdrop of your league – Player movement's okay. In fact, it just stokes the fires instead of making people resentful that players have moved. Now, no doubt, there's still people, idiots, burning jerseys and getting all mad about players that leave via free agency, but NBA fandom has evolved, and I think it has evolved dramatically really since LeBron's The Decision back in the summer of 2010. So Houston had James Harden and company a couple of years ago. Then they acquired Chris Paul. Now Chris Paul is out. They've acquired Russell Westbrook. Rockets fans in the last three or four years have had to adjust 
to totally different rosters and lineups and different faces as a chance to compete. So will this one work? Well, somebody's going to have to adjust, either the ball-dominant James Harden or the ball-dominant Russell Westbrook. Here's NBA analyst Chris Broussard, who joined Sports Radio 610, the triple threat in Houston. The fact that they were able to trade Chris Paul in that deal, uh, I think made it certainly made it better for the Rockets. I mean, when you envision Chris Paul, James Harden, and Westbrook together, you definitely don't know how in the world that's going to work. But getting off of Chris Paul, uh, his contract, it gives it the best chance it has to work. Now, it still is a difficult fit, uh, but it's got a better chance of working with Westbrook and Harden alone rather than having Chris Paul in the mix. Chris, who will have to make the biggest adjustment to their game since they're both alpha dogs, Westbrook or Harden? I don't think it's a matter of who will have to. It's a matter of who can and, and then secondarily is your part, who has to. James Harden is the only one of these two really capable of making a change to his game. Russell Westbrook is what he is. His great strength and to some degree of weakness is his playing at 110 miles an hour with great athleticism and energy for as long as he's out there on the floor. Russell Westbrook can't really change. If you put him off the ball – a change would be not being as ball dominant, right? But you take him off the ball, and he's not going to be – he's not a great jump shooter. He's not a good catch-and-shoot guy. So now he can cut more and run the floor more and things like that. Yeah, he can do that. But he can't really make a huge change to his game. Whereas James Harden is a more versatile player in terms of his offensive arsenal. He can catch and shoot. He can shoot off the bounce. He's a great outside shooter. He can penetrate. He can cut. So he could be more, I think, the guy that would have to make the biggest adjustment and give up the ball. But let's face it, James Harden for the last two years has been mentioning the same name uh, since with Michael Jordan and Will Chamberlain. It's going to be a challenge for him mentally to make that change. But I think Harden is the most capable of making those changes. So when you look at the hierarchy of, of the Western Conference and, and you see the, the move that the, the Rockets just made by, by picking up Russell Westbrook, where do you think that places uh, the Rockets in compared to the teams like the Clippers and the Lakers and, you know, Denver, Utah, Portland's, all these type of teams that are in the West? Um, where do you say that the, the Rockets were before the trade and then where are they at now? Well, look, before the trade, I mean, obviously the situation between Chris Paul and James Harden had gotten so bad they just needed to move one. And I don't know if the Rockets did this, but their first order of business should have been to sit CP3 and James Harden down and see if they can work this thing out. If they got some traction there, bring in Mike D'Antoni and see if they can make the type of tweaks to the offense, get Harden maybe moving more without the ball, that could take them to the next level because they really weren't bad. I mean, let's face it. They arguably are the second best team in the league the last two years. And two years ago, certainly could have beaten Golden State had Chris Paul not gone down. As far as so, I think the Clippers and the Lakers before this trade were better than the Rockets. And after this trade, they're better than the Rockets. I see no way this Rockets team can beat the Clippers or the Lakers if those two teams are healthy. Okay, I think a healthy Golden State 
with Clay Thompson at, you know, darn near 100% is better than the Rockets. I Denver and Utah are, are right there with the Rockets. Look, as we talked about on Friday, this was a bet that makes sense for Daryl Morey because they had hit a ceiling. Clearly, Harden and Paul were not on the same page. There was friction there. So a reshuffle of the deck was important, and you bring in a better player without having to sacrifice any of your starting roster. It's just draft picks. So the Rockets are better served today competing for a championship than they were yesterday. But... Is it going to work? I mean, it's a huge risk, and ultimately, I don't think it'll work. Ultimately, I think that both Harden and Westbrook will get to the point where they are sick of one another as well, and while it makes you better in the short term, I'm not convinced that this has long legs because of the styles of both of these guys, their personalities, and where they had come from in the past. In the NFL, one of the debates this summer, should the NFL look to move to an 18-game schedule. Sounds like the owners and Roger Goodell would love it. That means they can monetize two preseason games that nobody who cares about or watches anyway into regular season money. But the NFLPA's president, Demora Smith, says no way over my dead body. He joined the Sports Junkies on 106.7 The Fan in D.C. Let me just take a look at the old Google machine. Yeah. Um, uh, we had... 79 preseason concussions last year. Right. We had 214 total concussions. Right. We had 57 ACL tears. Right. 131 MCL tears. So I just have a simple, and I'm not a math guy. Yeah. Does that, does that, does that likelihood go up or go down if, if guys are playing um, more? So where we start the analysis is not um, whether status quo is something that we're okay with. Mm -hmm. We start the analysis on if I'm just pulling out ACLs or MCLs. If we have 218, our goal is actually to make those less. Right. So we would never even, we would never contemplate a, a world where even if you're playing you know, 16 games in 18, um, that's still two more weeks of practice, right? Well, but let's, let's eliminate the two weeks of practice then on the weeks that your guys are off, that they're designated well, off. Well, well, right, but that's not how we look at any of this. If the league wants to make a proposal yeah. about how to decrease injury, we'll hear it. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so, but... I don't think you can decrease injury. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you can decrease well, injury that, other than sh- shorten the but, season. But, but this is what I would say, D. Money talks. So if they well, come to the table well, with more money, I, you know what I mean? Well, no. Um, because if we're in a world where, I mean, I know it, it, it might sound a little crazy. What if we're in a world where we make as much money as we need? Mm-hmm. And, and you're in a world where you have as much money as you need, but you decrease the risk of injury you decrease the exposure to injury, and we actually decrease the chances that many of our guys are suffering the early onset of of neurological damage or rheumatoid arthritis Mm -hmm. um, or all the other things that go along with it. I mean, if the league wants to propose something that decreases injury, increases um, a player's long-term health care, and decreases their exposure to the type of injuries that we know cause long-term um, uh, problems, 
you know, we'll hear it, but we're never going to simply say um, the answer is money talks or the answer is you're only going to play 16 or the answer is but um, injuries. But, D, how does playing 16 add more injury? Maybe to your backup, certainly not to your starters. Your starters are gonna, ideally going to play 16 anyway. Well, you said practice well, time increases. Well, too. so let's just say well, we eliminate I'll, practice for I'll, two weeks. Well, there's all sorts of things you might want to eliminate. But what I would say is this is not the way that we look at proposals. And I know fans love to talk about ideas like this. But Mm -hmm. I live in a world where we want to decrease injury. We want to decrease exposure. We want to decrease um, the chances of long-term injury. We want to increase uh, the type of health care that we've got uh, uh, after football is over. Um, I didn't hear any of that baked into an 18-game proposal unless unless, Mm -hmm. unless I missed it while I was sipping in my bag. You're saying there's no amount of money that would make the players agree to it? Well, no, I I didn't say that. I said that everything that we look at, we look at in a comprehensive way about what the proposal is. Well, as you can hear there, DeMorris does not say it'll never happen. And he does not say there's no amount of money that can move us off of this line. Basically, this is a negotiating ploy by DeMorris Smith, and he realizes if the owners want 18 games, he's not going to acquiesce. They're going to have to give him something else. They're going to have to give him and his constituency more money. But the fact is, DeMorris Smith doesn't make a convincing argument in that segment about why it's any more dangerous. I mean, as you heard the host say, if players are only allowed to play 16 of the 18 and you're not including two weeks of practice time there, it's the same as playing a 16-game schedule. In fact, you could argue it's safer because then there's two two more bye weeks that's fit into the mold. So if Smith had a better counter to it, I, I could believe it, but I thought that was a terrible reasoning behind why they didn't want to do it and as you heard didn't sound like it's a no it's a no chance no contest it sounds like if they came with the right money that they would discuss Hugh Jackson once went 0-16 in Cleveland with the Browns now the Browns have a first year head coach and Freddie Kitchens Hugh joined WFNZ in Charlotte with Wilson and Parcell and gave a great Hugh Jackson quote that he thinks his job in Cleveland is actually some of the best coaching he's ever done. Obviously, it didn't end the way you would have liked for it to end in Cleveland. What did you learn uh, from your time there that that maybe can help you as a coach and as a person? Well, I learned a lot. I think uh, the two years of the constant losing, I learned how to overcome that and uh, still get guys to follow me and trust and believe in what I was trying to accomplish. Um, you learn a lot about yourself, you know, because you got to be able to stand in front of a group and keep them really going. And I've said this before. I think uh, during those times, probably some of the best coaching I did, contrary to what people think, because you're always doing anything and everything you can to find a way to win. You know, now whether, you know, it happens or not, uh, that's that's uh, not up to me sometimes. But, you know, again, I think I learned a lot uh, being in that situation. There'll be some great things that I'll be able to to uh, pull from as I start to record. Hugh Jackson on the Technicom guest line. Hugh, does it bug you maybe the perception coming off Cleveland, coming off the the one in thirty one season, followed by you know the the third year and what happened there? Does it bug you the perception that kind of forms when we talk about coaches who have a record similar to yours? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you never want those kind of narratives to be um, brought up with your name, but they are. You know, at the end of the day, you didn't win enough games, and it doesn't matter why or how or any of that. But, you know, all you can do is try to fix that in the future. You know, I hope people don't forget, you know, all the things that you've done in your career up to that point. You know, that you are, you know, that you've been one of the better coaches in the league and led good offenses and coach good offenses and coach some really good players. So that's all you can, can hope for. Hugh, uh, obviously, as you, as you go to coming off the Cincinnati stuff, should you get a third chance as a head coach? Is there something different you would do? Is there, would Hugh Jackson evolve? Like, how, how do you see any opportunities that can come your way going forward? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I can. I mean, just because of the situation in Cleveland doesn't mean that you can't coach. There's a lot of great coaches that have come before me that's coached there and went on and did great things, you know. So sometimes uh, the situation is different. You know, I think if people dig in and, and really take the time to look at the overall situation there, maybe they would understand it more. Uh, but at the same time, I understand when narratives get put out there, that's what people know. So, um, you know, hopefully people will think back to the times when I, you know, I to put myself in that position, I had to be doing something right. And uh, to go back and be a coordinator again or be a head coach again, I do believe is in my future. So I just got to go uh, work through the process and see where it goes. What would you like the narrative about you to be? Oh, it's just that here's a guy that knows how to overcome, you know, because there's a lot of people that would run from it all. You know, I'm not going to run from it. At the end of the day, that was that was me, you know, our staff and the people uh, who led Cleveland. But again, that doesn't mean that those coaches can't coach or they don't understand what they're doing. Maybe that just wasn't the right fit, the right situation for that group, and they just need to be in the right, right, uh, have the right opportunity to have success. Some of the best coaching I ever did. You went 0 16, you. During those times, probably some of the best coaching I did. You had a team that nearly went 500 without you, went on a big winning streak as soon as you were fired. Second half of the season was very good for the Browns last year. I, I mean, Hugh, you're not going to get that one by us. Some of the best coaching you've ever done. Come on, Hugh. Even you can't believe that. Finally, Last week, we had the quote from former Carmelo teammate Chauncey Billups, who said that the problem with Carmelo Anthony was scoring 30 points meant too much to him. Amari Stoudemire once played with Melo in New York for the Knicks. He joined Joe Beningo on WFAN in New York. Does he agree? I mean, Chauncey's a guy that's, that's well-respected, and he's a guy that really don't fabricate much when he speaks about the game of basketball. Uh, he's also NBA champion, so... Uh, you know, when, when he speaks about things, I, I, I have the tendency to, to, to somewhat take what he says very seriously and, and have to think that he's, he's been honest about it. Now, now you, well, let me ask you then. So you played with Melo. How, how was your relationship with him when you played with him with the Knicks? How about that? Uh, we had a great relationship. Melo and, I, Melo and I was great friends back even in high school, uh, even when he was in Syracuse and I was in the NBA. Uh, during the all-star runs we had when I, on the West Coast when I was in Phoenix, he was in Denver. So we, we, we've actually developed a, a solid friendship uh, over the years for sure. Now, a couple things, and i got, I got to ask you this. And, and, and like I said, as a Knicks fan, you guys are playing the Celtics in that playoff series, okay? And I think you guys wound up getting swept in that series. But you hadn't been to the playoffs in a long time, you know, that year when, uh, when you played Boston. And I believe that was the year that you hurt yourself in the dunk line. You hurt your finger Going up for a dunk in the uh, in the uh, pregame warmups. How about that? 
Yeah, you know, we had a, we had a great year going that year, and the, and the chemistry somewhat changed uh, about at the halfway point. And so we still were able to get to the playoffs, uh, but the Celtics were stacked, man. They had uh, Garnett, yep, Paul Pierce, yep. Rondo, yep. Uh, Ray Allen. They had a pretty stacked team. Uh, but, yeah, in the warm-up line, I went up for, for, for a dunk. You know, I keep myself very warm before the games. and uh, But I was able to still manage and play. But uh, the Celtics was a, was a pretty strong team. You know, let's go. I want to go back. And again, we're talking to Mari Stoudemire. You made a statement about how the chemistry changed. Did that chemistry change because Melo wound up coming to the Knicks? Well, we had a lot of players that, that left. You know, we, we, we I think right. it was maybe five or six right, players right, that right, were no, right. no longer with us. And we had to get used to playing with uh, 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 different players. And so, and, and get them used to the system of play and the style of play. So it took some time to really get that going. Yeah, well, that was you're right. I mean, that was the mellow trade. Raymond Felton and Gallinari and all the different guys that wound up, uh, you know, going to Denver uh, in that deal. Hey, Amari does not discount or discredit what Chauncey said. Basically, Amari says, Chauncey, when he speaks, people listen because he's usually right on it. And he does not dismiss the notion that Carmelo wanted his points. Now, he did say that there was no friction between them, but he does not dismiss the fact that Carmelo was a guy that wanted his numbers. So I think that was kind of damning silence, if you will, from Amari Stoudemire, and it's probably no grand secret, but now finally former teammates are saying it. Yeah, Carmelo was too selfish in terms of the points that he wanted in his own numbers versus winning games, and that's probably why he's out of a job right now. That's the best in your sports talk for Monday, July the 15th. We will see you tomorrow, everyone. Thanks for listening to Around the Dial. Subscribe now for the best daily recap in sports talk on Radio.com or the Radio.com app. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 